Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Welcome to session four in the life of Christ. In this session, we're going to be looking at the Middle Galilean ministry, as well as the Prean ministry of our Lord. Perea was an area east of the Jordan River and is found in the book of Luke for the most part. So join us as we begin today's study. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Father, thanks so much for bringing us out safely tonight to your house to study. I pray that you guide our discussions and guide our our journey into the text here as we understand more about our Lord and what he did on earth and how he lived. And just thank you for this opportunity again to study in Christ's name. Amen. Um, okay, we're going to cover... I looked at the schedule and we're looking, looks like we're just a little bit behind, but don't worry about that. We're, we're fine. We're doing all right. Um, but uh, we're going to be looking at the middle Galilean ministry and the Perean ministry tonight. Remember when we talked about the life of Christ, you can basically split it up into, or his ministry, at least part of his life, split up into the early Judean, Galilean, middle Judean, later Galilean, latter Judean ministry. He bounced between um, Galilee and Judea. And again, why did he not spend much time in Judea? Right. I mean, he didn't want to go down there and confront the Pharisees every other day and and just precipitate things faster than they should have. And the rejection was a lot higher down there because of the religious leaders. So he spent most of his time up in the Galilee area, and that's what we that's where we find you know mainly the Gospels concentrating on. But which Gospel really talks about his Judean ministry? You remember? What gospel really fills that one in? No? The one before June. Oh, okay. John. John. Right? Because John is different than the others. John, again, about 92% of John is not found in the other gospels. So John really concentrates on the Judean aspect of his ministry. The other gospels concentrate mainly on the Galilean part of his ministry. So when we look at the life of Christ, we're coming down to probably the last year here, and we have the middle Judean ministry of Christ. We find that in John 7, 10 through 10, 39, and occurred during the Feast of Tabernacles. That would have been about September, October on our calendar. And that would have been really about six months before his crucifixion, give or take, um, the way it was wor- the way it had been worked out. Um, and after this brief ministry, Christ spent some of his time in Perea, which is the Transjordan, before he came back at the next Passover to be crucified. All right? So that's when the Middle Judean ministry happened. It was not a very long time. And he came down during the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have been, again, September, October time frame. And while he was down there, several notable things happened when he was in Judea. We have the healing of the blind man. Let's, let's, let's go to John. Um, 
and see what's going on here. Really, John 7, 10. We have the discussion of the living waters. And I'm trying to see here in the dark because of my eyes. Yeah, turn it. Turn the lights on a little bit. It's hard to see everything here. Where I can get my... I have uh, two pair of glasses. I've got a, one pair for the weenie stuff, and i got a stronger pair. You know what that's like, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't know what that's like yet, right? But wait, you'll, you'll get there. There we go. Now we can see a little bit better. Now we can see a little bit better. Okay. In, in chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There's your answer. So, in the first part of John, John 6, he's down in Judea. Then he goes back up to Galilee. All right. But then they want to go down to Judea to the Feast of Booths. All right. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So basically he sent his brothers down to the Feast of Tabernacles, and he sort of made the idea that he wasn't ready to go yet, but later on he went down. And the people are trying to figure out who he is. That's what it says here in verse uh, 12. He is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. So about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began... To teach. And how did he teach? He taught as one having authority in the temple. And um, verse 32, interesting, the Pharisees tried to arrest him. And Jesus said, nope, it's not time, time yet. And on the last day of the feast, he stood up, any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Verse 37. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow living waters. Now, why did he say that? If any man thirsts, let him come and drink. Yeah. See, one of the one of the things that we have, and one of the difficulties we face when we study the scripture is we think Christ was like walking down the road and every once in a while he'd like flip out and say something. Stop the wall. He's walking along and all of a sudden he'll stop and say, hey, if any man thirsts, let him come after me. Or earlier in John when he stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. And we think he's just like walking around all of a sudden he just comes up with these things, you know. Well, that's not what happened. Behind all of his sayings by all of his sermons, there is a, a um, context. And this is no different. See, if you go back and you study the Feast of Booths, what happened, what was the Feast of Booths to commemorate anyways? The Feast of Booths, the, the Tabernacles. What, what was Israel supposed to do on the Feast of Tabernacles? Do you remember? Well, they made temporary dwelling places to, to commemorate what? The Exodus. The Exodus. 
they made like little tents out of palm leaves or, and they would stay outside to, to talk about the exodus. And on the last day of the feast, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the high priest would take some water and pour it out to commemorate the crossing of the Red Sea. I think it is. And at that time, Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come after me. It's in the context of the feast that he says this. It says, as the priest is pouring out the water, Christ is saying, I'm the living water. The same thing with the Feast of, ta of, of Lights. When Christ said, I'm the light of the world, it was, temp it was the winter time. And Christ said, I'm the light of the world. Well, what was going on? Well, what happened in the Feast of Lights is that a giant menorah would be burning in the temple at night, lighting up the city of Jerusalem. You'd see this massive menorah, seven, seven lampstands burning. And in the context of that, what does Jesus do? He gets up and says, I'm the light of the world. All right? So there's always a context to these sayings of Jesus. He's not just randomly flipping out once in a while and making some kind of statement. There's actually a context to it. And he talks about the rivers of living water. And what do you see happening in John 7 is an increasing division of the people. You've got people that think he's whacked. You've got people that think he's the Messiah. You've got the crowd that's not really certain who he is. But what you see now is, is as, as we're getting down towards the end of his ministry, what's happening to the people? What is happening to them? Polarizing. Starting to polarize. It's really starting to polarize now. You know, it's time to fish or cut bait. Now they're making a decision. And it's great division, especially since all the officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees are against him. But the crowds are still for him, but the crowds are fickle. They'll go every which way. All right? Now, what you have, and this is interesting, um, I'll talk about it here in a few minutes. But you have in the last part of chapter 7, verses 40 through 52, you have the, the account of the division of the people. And then in chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11, you have the, the story of the woman taken in adultery. All right, now why do I bring that up? Well, that's a very controversial passage. Does anybody understand what the controversy there is? They think it was just inserted. Right. Now let me ask a question do you, do, before, look, before going further with this. Does it sound like a true story? Yes. Yeah, it does. Yes. Right? I mean, it certainly sounds true. But the question is, did John have this here in his gospel? So it's really not in the old, like, Marcion manuscript? Well, it's not in the oldest. P66 omits it. Um, all the, all the, the, the oldest and more ancient manuscripts and translations omit this. It does pop up in later manuscripts, but the older ones don't have it. So if you want to ask my opinion, I think, no, John did not write it, although it is a true story. It's not something that John had in his gospel. 
All right, and here's the re here's another reason it doesn't fit the flow. I mean, if you look at the flow, you've got the division. You've got Christ at the Feast of Tabernacles. You've got the division. And then immediately after that, you've got him saying, I'm the light of the world. All right? That story does not fit in there. It, in fact, if you read from 752 to 812, the, the John flows very smoothly between those two points. All right? Now, you know, this is not the place to debate this because some people would cough up their skull to think that somehow we would decide that this shouldn't be in there. But again, the whole concept here is, it's not, you know, they say, well, you're taken away from Scripture. God's going to take your name out of the book of life. No, I'm trying to determine was it originally there in the first place. And there, there is significant debate about this particular passage. Now, is this something you want to spring on your people? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Don't need to go there. All right. We're running with the big dogs in here. We can talk about this, but but as a pastor, you know, if you're I wouldn't I wouldn't get into this. All right. What do you think, Gary? Well, uh first of all, I have a hard time saying anything bad about anything that's in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> There's something in me that I just can't do it. I think it's there. I think God made sure it was there. Yeah. How it got there, maybe we could debate that. Yeah. But I think it was put there in this context, the way it was, for the for the simple expression of the thought we're doing right here. We're discussing it, and it, it always boils down to it always takes a measure of faith to be a Christian. Yeah. So you know, and God, I think God put it in there to weed out those that have faith and those that do not have faith. Those that have faith will look at it and accept it and go on. Those that don't have faith, they'll say, "Yeah, that Bobby can't." Well, I would disagree with your last statement there in the sense that, and I, I don't want to get on this because we'll never get off of the topic, but, but the job, no, the, the job of the textual critic is to try as accurately as he can say what is the original text. And when I have a pile of manuscripts and translations that are, have the oldest tradition in them, and then I have manuscripts come at a later point in time with this in them, i got to explain that somehow. I've got to explain it somehow. If I had old manuscripts with it in it, it'd be a lot easier to deal with. I don't have that. Do we have any translations that they said they translated it from, from this group of scripture? And then... I'd have to look, I'd have to look at my Greek text. I'll do that during our break. I won't do it now, but I got my little because Greek. That would be my next. Question. Yeah, but when you you don't know where they translated this yeah. from. Yeah. It may have been from an older text that had it in, so we don't know. Yeah, we I I got to look because that's one of the keys is what do the translations have? If you don't have it in the Greek text, but you have a lot of ancient translations with it in it, that would tell you they had some thing in front of them that they translated from. Me, where I land on this is that I I I have no problem seeing it as a true story. All right. So I'm, I'm not one of those that say, well, I'll just throw it out and don't preach on it. It doesn't matter. I, I would say it happened. It, it really did. Um, I don't know whether it happened at this point in the ministry of Christ, but it's a, certainly a true story that happened. So I don't have any problem with that. And I don't have any problem with saying it was not part of the original Gospel of John because what did John himself say? Jesus did a lot of things 
that weren't even written down. So I don't have any problem with that. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's an aspersion. I wouldn't use it to cast aspersion on the trustworthiness of the rest of Scripture. Because again, you've only got four or five of these things that you have to slog through. This is one of the four or five. The rest of the stuff is intact. All right. But anyways, we have that and we have to mention it because that's what we're going through here. But be that as it may, let's look at, you know, in the next part, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, chapter 8. What's that? While that's at the end of the Feast of Lights, he stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the water of life, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world. And then he has his big discussion with the Pharisees who are trying to, um, to discredit him. And again, I can't exegete this whole passage. We'll never get through it tonight. But let's look. I'm just trying to hit some high points. 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciple. What does it mean to abide in his word? Stay in it. The idea of abide there is you got to stick with it. And, and, and you know, th this is one of the biblical paradoxes. How do you know if you're a Christian? You know you're a Christian if you stick with it. You say, well, wait a minute, is that works? No, it's not works. Right? No, the Bible says faith without works is dead. So works is the fruit of our faith. But the point, but some people say, well, what you're saying, you know, there's some passage that says, if you continue in my word, or if you continue to the end, and they, they look at it and say, well, that's sort of saying, well, that's sort of saying that I'll be saved if I persevere to the end. And the way to understand that is it's a yo answer. Yes, in the sense that if you stay to the end, you show you're saved. No, in the sense that it's a human work. How is it that you stick to the end? How is it that you remain faithful? Through Christ. Who gives you Strength. the power to do it. Mm -hmm. So from the human perspective, how do you know you're a Christian? If, 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 the, if, Gary, if, Gary, if Gary dies tomorrow and I attend his funeral, and someone asks me, how do you know Gary is a Christian? I would not say, well, because I saw the halo. No, you saw, the, you saw his fruit. I saw him stick it to the end. He stayed with it to the end. He remained faithful to the end. He did not abandon. He did not give up. He did not turn his back and go the other way. And Christ is telling him, now, now what this means here is this. There's a lot of people following Jesus Christ that weren't his true disciples. Right. And there's a lot of people that go to your church that aren't really there. Right. And Christ is saying, if you want, to, you want to know who my true disciple, who the real disciple is, the real disciple is the one who sticks with it. And then he has the whole discussion here of Abraham. For Abraham was, I am. Um, what's Christ talking about there? Well, I'm the I am of the Old Testament. I am the I, I am the I am of the Old Testament. Now, as some of the disciples heard that, what did they do? 
think of the stoning? Not the disciples. Then they asked him, what did he mean? No. They left. Some of his disciples walked no more with him. When Christ started raising the bar, what did some of them do? Leave. Cost us too high. You say, well, I thought they were a disciple. I mean, they were following Jesus. Yeah, but there's followers of Jesus. Then there's the true follower of Jesus. And there's a difference. So you're saying the true followers stay to the end? Yes, they stick it out. They're, they're going to hang in there. They're not going to abandon Christ. So you only, but then you only recognize this until, until they die? From the human perspective, we're talking from the human perspective. Look, from God's perspective, does he know whether you're saved or not? Oh, yeah. oh, he knows. Oh, he knows that. He knows way before. All right? Yeah. So it's not a mystery with God whether you're in or not. Right. How do I know you're in? You don't know. I don't. I don't have the book of life. Right. I don't know whether you're one of the elect or not. Right. I don't see the halo. Right. All right? But what can I see? You can see my fruit. I can see the fruit of your life. Right. I can see the perseverance. I could say, you know, Brenda stuck with the Lord through thick and thin, through good and bad, through, you know, the, the, the sunshine days and the rainy days. She stuck it through. She was faithful all the way to the end. And so what would that tell me? That, that I was a believer. That you were real. You understand where he's sitting? Yes. It, yeah. Yes. It, it's not that you do that in order to be saved. That's not, that's not what's going on. And that's where people get mixed up. Because some of these verses that they read, they think, well, it's saying that i got to do this in order to be saved. No, it's not saying that. From the human perspective, how do I know you're a Christian? You persevere to the end. That's called the perseverance of the saints. What does that mean? God enables those who are believers to persevere to the end. And if you have someone who does it for a long time, who, who joins the church, who is baptized, who serves on the church, but then all of a sudden you ask, hey, what happened to Joe? Well, he's a Buddhist today. He abandoned the whole Christian faith. He's now got candles in his house. And he scratches a boy, he must have lost his salvation. No. He never had it. He didn't stick it out. He didn't stick to the end. And when we look at our own lives, how do we know we're truly saved? Well, we keep we keep going forward. We we stick it out. Yeah. We stick it out. And you have the true disciple and the false disciple. The true disciples gave their lives. Ultimately, they did. When it came down to it, they did. And that's what John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, they went out from us because they weren't of us. They were never of us. Was Judas ever a true disciple? Wait a minute, he cast out demons. Well, so do the guys on TBN, supposedly. That doesn't mean anything. When it, when it came down to the... And, and look, you know, just think about the contrast between a Judas and a Peter. Both of them denied the Lord, right? Right. But what happened in Peter's case? He repented. He repented and came back. What happened to Judas? He didn't come back. He never looked over his shoulder. You know, you look at you look at Judas when you, when you look at that personality type. You know, we say everybody's got a breaking point. Mm -hmm. He had a selling point. Yeah. He followed Christ only to to the point where somebody met 
the uh, cost for a better deal. I think that happens a lot in the world today. Yeah. Well, poor old Judas, you got to understand, he's following Jesus with the aspiration that he's going to be one of the big muckety mucks in the kingdom. And when it became evidence that it wasn't going to sort of go that way and Jesus was going to be crucified, he wanted out. But how did he want out? Did he just want to walk away from the deal? I don't think it was as much gain. What, he wanted money? He got 30 pieces of silver out, but that wasn't a big price. He was still a follower of Christ and he would have gone after him. He needed to like, say, like, I'm with you guys. Right. He needed to really break it. He, he needed to do something to really ingratiate himself and sever the connection to Christ. Actually, what he did just alienated him even more. He did. Because they looked at him with disgust. But see, he wanted him, but see, he was not worried about them. He was, well, he, he was worried about the chief priests. He wanted to make them understand clear that he was definitely not under any circumstances on Jesus' side. And what better way to do that than to betray him? Not backfire, like Gary said, and made them even despise him. But he wanted out. I mean, you, I mean, if you put it in context, you can understand a little bit of why he was really in it like that. Because, you know, he looked at the Sadducees and, and their lifestyle, their standard of living, their place in the community, their place in the temple. I mean, they they had it all. They had mm -hmm. they had a pedigree, they had a bank account, you know, they had a position in the temple. I mean, they they when you looked at it from a Jewish perspective, man, that was the epitome of a Jewish life. And you know, when he, he thought he was getting in on the ground floor with the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he got right there with the money bag, too. Yep. So, I mean, he was... He was going to be the treasurer in the kingdom. I mean, he had been a fat cat, you know. That's that's the way to do it. And and even today, like, we... I don't know about Well, I portray Jews as always having money or always being in good positions like lawyers mm -hmm. or doctors. Or, you know, I always see them as somebody. And, mm -hmm. you know, as we look at... Today's life, you know, they seem to always have money. Yep. Or doing well, as mm -hmm. you know. Well, they are God's blessed people. Yeah. You know. And then in John nine, we have the account of the man born blind, and we all know the story. Christ runs into this man who was born blind, and, and how did the disciples deal with this? What was their question? Who Yeah. What happened yeah. to make him? <laughs> Yeah, <clears throat> See, here's the, here's the deal. In that society, a person who was handicapped or an invalid or something like that was seen as being under the curse of God. They did something wrong. And why did they believe that? Well, every time they did something wrong, bad things happened. Possibly, but what, what other reason do people think that? Because it wasn't that many. No. What does it do to yourself? Makes you look better. Man. Yeah. There's a pompous component in all of us, isn't there? Somebody else is going through a trial. They must have done something bad, but I'm not going through a trial, therefore I'm doing something good. That's the whole Job syndrome, right? Come on, Job, what'd you do wrong? 
Fess up. Tell us. And what was Christ's response? He was born like this to glorify God. Now stop and think about that. That's pretty... Wait a minute. You're telling me, God, that you had this man born blind so that he could live for all these years, only be healed by Christ? God said, yeah, I did. Now, what's our initial reaction? Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, so why? That's so horror. That's cruel. But the question that God says, well, I don't know him existence, much less sight. He'll be here later. Oh, you did? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I can get it. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll turn off the lights. But, um, what was I thinking before he came in? Oh, yeah. I mean, it sounds unfair, doesn't it? Wait a minute. Why would God do that? And God says, look, I have a right to do as I please. And you don't have a right to do what? Question me. Not only that, too, but if you really put it in perspective, I mean, say you live to be 100, which is a long life. If he'd have been blind for 50 or 60 years, or whatever it was, the reality is when you get to heaven, God can undo every bad thing that has ever happened to you and make it as if it never, ever happened. Mm -hmm. So from God's perspective, if you suffered for a hundred years, it don't mean nothing in the perspective of eternity yep. and when he can undo it. Yep. And that's what you got to remember. He can undo it. Yeah. And see, see, that's that's our problem. Our problem is we are bounded by our own human temporal existence. I just got the idea. We're, we're bounded. Yeah, write down this sermon. We are bounded by our own human existence. We see things in terms of this life only. Mm -hmm. And if you look at things in terms of this life only, is life fair? Nope. Nope. If you look at it like, yeah, like in, in that one lifetime, but now generations later, 2,000 years later, that's blind. Like, well, number one, we're reading about him. He's got a whole chapter in the Bible devoted to him, which is quite a... Yeah. And we're going to meet him someday. Um, yeah, he said, boy, somebody healed my eyes. You guys don't know what's wrong with you boys. <laughs> you know? And they said, you were all together born in sin, and you're telling us something? See, what was their idea? Yeah, he was born that way because he said. Yeah. That was their mentality. They, they, I felt sorry for the Pharisees because they were so locked into their own worldview, they just could not bust out of it. But could it, could it be because they didn't know? When, when you said that, because I, I can remember saying stuff like that too. But as you grow, you learn. So are you saying that the Pharisees, they didn't have a chance to learn to, to learn a different way? The Pharisees are an example of what happens when God does not interfere with your own stupidity. He just lets you go. 
And that to me comes. They had the Old Testament. But that, okay, so See, that means if you don't want to get better, it tells me that if you don't want to get better to advance yourself in the word, then you don't want to know. Yeah. Here's you don't the, want to know because you might yeah. be here's, here's the thing to understand. Right. <laughs> yeah, here's the thing to understand. If the Holy Spirit does not right. open your eyes, you're not going to see. Period. Yeah, you're not going to see anything. And if God just lets you alone, you're going to wind up like a Pharisee. You're not going to see. You're blind. You can't see. You think you're seeing. You think you've got the answer. You think you know what's going on. And you don't know squat. Because you're blind. And you're blind to the fact that you're blind. That's worse. And so the Pharisees in those are an example of what happens when God does not interfere. Now, the point is this, and this, this is the side, the flip coin of this. The Pharisees can't tell God, well, you're being unfair to us because you didn't give us a chance to see. Right, okay. See, but, but, but God's answer, Christ's answer, or God's answer is, I did give you a chance to see. It's in here. You wouldn't take advantage of it. And this is the point to understand. This is the point to understand. When somebody perishes without Christ, it's not God's fault. It's their fault. You understand? It's not God. You can't say, well, it's your fault, God, because you didn't choose them. It's your fault because you didn't open their eyes. It's your fault that they perished in their sins. There's nothing in the Bible that, that blames God for that. But look how many ministers that don't ever go to classes or try to advance in the Word. Because they've got congregations full of people like you're, that you hang with, that kiss their feet. And make them think that they know. Yeah. No, but we're living in a time when they want the ears itched. Yeah. And tickled. I mean, it's the same thing that you said what, a week ago when you went over that what, Macedonian yeah, church or whatever, yeah. and you got this oh got this guy coming in, this this false prophet, and you've got people fawning over him like he's you yeah. know the Messiah or something yeah. like that, and and it's because it's because people fawn over them. I mean, they they really. I mean, the Pharisees thought that they were God's spokesman. They were called the rabbi, the teacher. So these, these people are like the prophet and yeah. ministers that never, I know they don't go to class. To they don't need to because they get their information directly from God or so they That's think. That's what they say. You're right. You, you, are so, you must have been listening to them. They'll say that to you in a minute. I'm the one who gets the word directly from Christ. God doesn't give me that word, and he, and he certainly doesn't give it to you here. The Bible says to study to show yourself approved. Yeah. Thing, every time you teach them, that you like teach something that you're not sure of, and you say the wrong thing, that just proves that you don't. This is the standard. Everything is measured by this. Yeah. Everything. Mm -hmm. You come in here, and I don't care if you tell me you got a note directly from God. If it's not in here, you didn't get it from God. One thing, uh, a couple about a week ago, I'm in the online philosophy class now. And it's not a face-to-face -face thing, so it's kind of a teacher, and well, as well as students kind of sitting, like, oh, we have anonymity, so we can be much harsher in what we say. And we have discussion topics posted online, and one of them is about like the existence of God and the difference between uh, uh, 
philosopher and theologist. And the teacher, the teacher said, oh, well, the difference is, is blah, 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 blah. And then he, and then he said, in summary, um, a theologist, uh, basically the gist of it was, a theologist blindly accepts assumptions about the mind of God, and a philosopher seeks to, uh, like, support it through fact. And then I wrote the teacher and, like, poked it from the I'm like, well, no. And I told him, and I gave him my two cents, and I said, and then I said, in my summary, I said, I suggest that, it's not a matter of, oh, we assume blindly because we read through here. We have lots of like things we look through. We want to understand the text. We go deeper in the text. We don't blindly just, okay, like we study the text. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and I remember in summary I said that it's not a matter of blind acceptance. It's a matter of perspective. A philosopher wants to judge the book by the standards of the world. We want to judge the world by the standards of the text. Yeah. That's probably pretty good. That's pretty, that's pretty good. So you don't need, you don't. The substance of things hoped for yeah. and the evidence of things unseen. Our lives are impacted by what we're doing for God. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, we don't, in response, you know, to that statement, we, we have proofs that this is the word of God. We have evidence. Right. It's not a blind, not blind leap faith. in the dark and hope God catches you. There's faith, but it's not blind. We it's not blind faith. Evidence. Not you know, and you have to ask the philosopher if you got however many philosophers there are is how many philosophies you have. Right. Philosophy is irrelevant. I mean, if it's right, it agrees with the word of God. If it doesn't, it it's wrong. So why even study it? Yeah, there's so many things. Like my, honestly, the philosopher yeah. teacher, he's big in the like the like. Oh well, reality we're going through right now in, in the online class is like. The subject of reality is it the mind? Is it like the materialistic? Of, is it the world itself? Is it all just in your mind? I think, therefore, I am that kind of thing. And he kind of and he even says like he falls on the side of like, oh, well, it's like my reality could be different than your reality. So like things like morality and summary don't actually matter because my reality could be different from yours. Well, you know, my response back to him is, you tell that to God when you see him. <laughs> all right. Um, look, you know. When we look at this whole concept here, the Pharisees, and we, we see here with the Pharisees, they were blind because they refused to see the truth. Although it was dangled in front of them, although they saw it, they refused to see it. And the reason they refused to see it is because they were blind. And what happens is after a while, the more blind you are, you get blinder and blinder and blinder. The longer you go without responding to the truth, the harder it is to respond to the truth. And they reached a point of no return. They reached a point where God says, I'm not going to bother you because it's obvious you're not even open to the possibility of being wrong. There's nothing more I can do. Now, I don't understand all the mechanics of how that works out. But the Bible teaches if you see, it's, God's, it's to God's credit. If you don't, it's your fault. You're going to say I'm Gary? Yeah, you know, Jesus told told those Pharisees, he said, you won't even come to me. And he said, if you'd have come to me, then I, could, I would have saved you. Mm -hmm. And he basically, they completely refused to accept Jesus Christ as the King and the Messiah. Yeah. That's the bottom line. They completely refused it. Not only did they refuse it, they went out of their way to, to destroy... Christ and his ministry. And, and their perspective was they, did, they didn't believe him. 
And then since they didn't believe him, he deserved to be dead. Yeah. And they wanted him dead. Because he wasn't part of their group. But at the same time, they're more culpable because, one, they knew beforehand that there was a Messiah on the mm -hmm. way. And they saw everything firsthand that the Messiah had come. And not only that, but they were there on that first resurrection morning when the dead came out of the graves and went into the city. So, you know, they were right in the front row to see everything firsthand. So, you know, you look at them, yes, they're lost. But they're, they're not just lost, lost. God made every provision to save them if they would have turned and looked at Christ. And they wouldn't. And they wouldn't. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. The they wouldn't do that. Greater steps to save them. Yeah. In, in a sense, I mean, it's what it's what Christ said to Jerusalem. I would have gathered you yeah. like a hen gathered her chicks, and you wouldn't do it. And, and and the thing to understand is, unless God overrides the hardness of our heart, none of us will turn to Him. And not only that, they were so ignorant of the fact they said, "Let His blood be on us and our children." And God said, That's fine. That's about as stupid a statement as anybody ever could make to God. What yeah. I mean, you know, I can imagine getting to heaven saying dumb, dumb statements made in history, and the top of the list is that one. Yeah. You know, yeah, why did yeah, six million of them die in the okay. gas chamber? Because the blood of Christ is on them and their children. Yeah. They have been the most persecuted people. I saw, I saw a lady on TV years ago before I really, really got into the word and stuff, and she made a dumb statement like that. She was gay out of California. And she said, I never will forget, she says, I will take anything God put up on me because I'm not changing from being gay. At that moment, I didn't, I really wasn't in the church or nothing. I fell down on my knees and I prayed. And I said, Lord, forgive her. And I don't know what's going on, but I could feel she yeah. did, She definitely didn't know what she was saying. That was a foolish statement. Yeah. yeah. She def. I knew then that she did not know what she was saying. Mm -hmm. And you know, I thank God. You know, that I could see really now. Yeah. Statement that you don't make statements. Like that. Well, when you look at when you look at Christ's conflict with the Pharisees, which is something we're going to talk about mm -hmm. in, in a little bit, probably not tonight, but next, you know, one of the next classes, is. They had, like Gary said, they had every provision. I mean, here's a guy raising the dead. Come on, guys. Come on. And you're telling me he's not the Messiah because he doesn't jot, dot all the same I's and cross all the same T's that you do? He's raising people from the dead. He's banishing diseases. The demons are running, screaming from people. And you're telling me he's not the Messiah because he doesn't have your theological perspective position come on guys and and the, there's there's a couple of honest ones Nicodemus he was an honest one and there are some others that were honest and, and and not a lot of them well Paul was so bad that Christ had to show up personally to him but when Christ did Paul was very quick to say oops yeah but I think there was something in Paul's character that that prompted God to do what he did. Um, I don't think there was anything in Paul's character that prompted God to do that. God did it because of his own sovereign grace. Now we can ask God that when we get to heaven. That'd be something to ask. Alright. Because he could do that for everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe Paul lived his whole life up to that point to glorify God. 
Well, it says, Paul said, Paul said, I was set apart from my mother's womb to be an apostle. The point is, God had a plan for Paul that went beyond what Paul had for himself. And God worked it out. But boy, when you get getting back to the text here, when you when you look at this man born blind here in John 9, you see the 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 stubborn insistence on the part of the Pharisees and the disciples and everybody that the reason this guy was blind because he or his parents did something wrong. And we like to do that because see that makes us feel better. When I look at somebody who's suffering and I have this mindset that somehow they're suffering because they sinned and therefore I'm not suffering because I didn't sin. It makes me feel better about myself. And that's really a horrid way to think. Come on the same level as third grader bullying someone. It's like not much more intelligent. Yeah. And the whole point that Christ made is says, you know, if you don't repent, you're going to perish just like them. What makes you any better? What makes you any different? Nothing makes you different. And, of course, we have the story here where what did Christ do? He healed this guy. Then we have the account. I like verse 34. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they threw him out of the synagogue. Here they are confronted with a man who was born blind. Now, here's the thing. What, what made this so unique, this, this idea of him being born blind? This never happened before. Well, it was never, it was never happened that Somebody who was born blind was, this guy never saw. Mm -hmm. All right? But what's the other thing that's going on here? Why do you think God, this guy was over 30 years old because he was an adult. Why did, uh, why did God take so long? Time wasn't right. The time wasn't right, but what is God doing? No. God often does this. Remember, this has been healing to uh, show, you know, a spiritual life. Yeah. Well, let's think. Yeah, I think. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. Yeah. What did he do? Made it hard. He made it impossible. Yeah. He wouldn't check with his mouth that only God could catch. I love it. <laughs> How to write that? Statement down. I got it on tape. I remember that one. He backed himself so deep into a corner that the only escape was God had to ride in and pull him out of there, or he wouldn't. Have. I mean, he not only except the wet wood. Yeah, he 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 doused the wood. He had water all over the place. A lot of them were dead after he got dusted. And he made it impossible because some jokers say, "Well, you know, he hit a little match underneath the woods, you know, and it caught fire." Blah. Yeah. Well, you know, when you soak it with the the history, you know, yeah, to say that he was a a, a chemist and like yeah, yeah, yeah. Reactions when you put water on it, it burst into flame. Yeah, that that sounds like something those idiots would say. Look, yeah, he made it hard for God. Like make fire from water. What happened with Gideon? Remember Gideon? How did he start out with? How many guys did he start out with? Quite a few. And how do you, how many did he wind up with? Three hundred. So you know, Gideon comes back and he's on Larry King Live, and you get you know how how did he pull off the the defeat of the Midianites? You know, I mean, you know, there's thirty thousand of those guys. You know, well, you know, I had sixty thousand guys when or stop. Yeah. So, well, there's three hundred of us. What? How'd you do that? You know. 
here's the whole point. God, God takes delight in making things difficult for himself so that when he moves, there's only one possible explanation. This guy was blind for 30 years so that these Pharisees had to walk over him every day for 30 years. They saw this guy begging for a living every day for years and years and years. Everybody knew this guy. This wasn't a guy that just floated into town, right? right. This was a guy that they knew was in their community, that was at the temple every day taking alms, they knew this guy was blind as a bat. And when he starts seeing, God is making it very evident. There's only one way this guy is seeing. And what did they do? Missed it. They missed it. Well, see, see our problem is and let's think of us as Christians. A lot of times we don't see God's hand in our lives. Right. When His hand is there. We don't see it. We think He's out to lunch. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't see His hand until many years later in life. You look back and say, Oh, yeah. oh wow. Mm -hmm. Look what happened there. Mm -hmm. We see God's hand when we look back. A lot of times we're no different. We, we just fail to see yeah. Him there. But the sad thing, yeah, you know, you know, the Pharisees say, "Well, you're going to tell us you're born in sin, and you're telling us, yeah, right." They cast him out of the synagogue. I like uh, at the end there, in verse thirty-five, Jesus. Heard they cast him out and found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Let me believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Not only was his sight restored, but what else was restored? Not only that, he got physical sight, but he was saved. He was saved. Yeah, but he believed. He believed. Um, I'll get thrown out of the synagogue for that. Mm -hmm. Not only did he receive physical sight, he received spiritual sight and salvation. Mm -hmm. She said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This was a big object lesson. Jesus said, I came to bring sight to those who don't see, and for those who see, I came to blind them. And you're saying, well, what's he saying there? Well, what is Christ? What's happening? There's a polarization, right? And of course, what's the Pharisees say? Do you think we're blind? He said, no, nah, you guys see. What's he doing? <laughs> He's being sarcastic, yeah. He's being sarcastic with them. You guys never done nothing for me spiritually for 30 years that I was blind. This man comes by and changes my life in one moment. And you're going to tell me about spiritual things? And then in John 10, we have the Good Shepherd. 
the account of the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And we have a great um, discussion here at the end of this section here in John 10, 22 through 39, where Christ basically says, I and the Father are one. Of course, what is that? That's a statement of what? Deity. Now, some people say, no, that means that just he and the Father are on the same page. No, that's not what the word there means. That was the case, and they wouldn't want to have wanted to kill him. Yeah, see, they're, they're brighter than most of the scholars today. See, scholars read this and say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. That was written in back. That was written in by the early church. Wait a minute. What did the Jews do? They picked up stones to kill him. Why? He made himself out to be God. And he said, by the way, there's also this great statement of the security of salvation, right? If you're in God's hand, can any man pluck you out of his hand? Now, there are some people that say, well, you may not be able to get plucked out, but if you want to, you can jump out. I don't believe that. I, I believe in security. I believe if you are truly born again, you can't unbecome born again. If God, It's like God declaring you righteous and then all of a sudden changes his mind and undeclaring you as being righteous. There's, there's nothing in Scripture on that, that, that you can lose it. Lots of passages that say you may never have it and look like you have it. But to say you can lose it, to say that you can thwart the sovereign plan of God, I, I don't think so. I like what Romans says. It says, can, anything lay, can anyone lay anything to charge of God's elect? Well, see, how about God? Could he do that? Well, no. He's the one that declared us righteous. God's the judge who acquitted us. He's not going to charges. How about Christ? Christ might do that. Well, wait a minute. What's Christ doing for us right now? Interceding, Interceding for us. So God's not going to con condemn us. Christ isn't con con going to condemn us. What about angels, principalities, powers? Nope, they're not going to be able to do that. How about anything that's here now or is going to come? Well, no, that can't do it. Paul says, I'm persuaded that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. We're secure. And Christ is saying, my sheep hear my voice. I think that's an interesting concept there. I have found as I get older in my Christian life, I'm getting more sensitive in many ways to the voice of God. I know when he's talking and when he isn't. And I can't explain that. It sounds mystical, doesn't it? But I, I can hear somebody, I can hear a preacher, and I can say, you know, it's not the voice of the Savior there. I don't know what it is, but that, that's, not, that's not the voice of God. Now, how am I able to do that? Because you're in tune. And who's enabling me to be in tune? The Holy Spirit. It's not me. No, it's, Holy it's not my great intellect. Forget that. Now, 
if you were studying, then you come more in tune to when the Lord is talking. Yeah. And what about all the friends you hang with? Well, my friends are in tune. So <laughs> the friends I hang with, they, they so in tune with the Lord. I was like, I don't know if I'm there yet. So they, they feel the same way. Oh, yeah. All right. My, my good friends. Uh, all right, good. They go to church so much. I'm like, um, they study too. So. Yeah. And it's like when we get to talking, I got to make sure that we're on the same page. Yeah. They're studying and I'm studying. But a lot of people, they you know, a lot of Christians, they're tossed to and fro like children, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Yeah. But Christ here is saying, my sheep hear my, hear my voice. Yeah. And I know them. And, and I, I just, I mean, it's getting, I don't know how to explain it. I, you know, you, I can't explain it. But I can hear somebody say, you know, that's not the voice of God there. That, that's not. Yeah, that's not right. And a lot of it goes back to who are they exalting. When you got somebody preaching, talking about how great they are and how the kingdom of God is going to be derailed if they don't get their jet plane so they can go to all their meetings, that's not the voice of God. I can guarantee you that. But Christ is the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep. And Christ sees Israel as sheep. As needy sheep. And someone said, you know, like the Christian or the sheep is the most accurate view of the Christian. Totally helpless, totally dependent on the shepherd. Unable to defend ourselves. And in fact, the job of the pastor is to be a shepherd, an under-shepherd. What does that mean? He feeds, leads, and weeds the sheep. Feeds them what? The Word of God. Leads them where? In the truth of Scripture. And every once in a while he has to yank a weed, doesn't he? He has to deal with sin or false teaching. That's part of the job of a shepherd, to help the sheep be healthy. But there's a lot of imagery here in, in this, this. You've got Christ, the bread of life. You've got him, the light of the world. You've got him, the water of life. You've got him, the good shepherd. And that goes along with John. John uses a lot of pictures of who Jesus is. He heals the man born blind. And, you know, this, this is one of the sad things. And then we'll, we'll, we'll go on. But... One of the things to warn people about is if God has revealed himself to you and you do nothing about it and you keep doing nothing about it, what's going to happen? Right. But just just, to, just of natural course, is it going to be easier or harder for that person? It's going to get a little harder every time. It's going to get a little harder, a little harder, a little harder, a little harder. Until someday it's going to be so hard that nothing's going to happen. The hardness of heart. And that's what the Hebrew writer says, don't let anyone be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that's probably got to be the saddest thing for me. You know, I, I've known people that they know the Bible, they've been hanging around church all their life, 
And to this day, I, I don't think they're truly born again. And it saddens me because you're starting to see them getting hard. The truth doesn't do anything anymore. The Word of God doesn't make a dent in their lives. And they don't care. And I can't help but think how many of them are really lost. They don't know the Lord at all. The Good Shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This is interesting here. I got just in the notes here. Christ knows a sheep. Christ knows who, who, who's his own, right? He's not deceived by that. And the sheep know and recognize Christ. They recognize the voice of the shepherd. Christ protects the sheep from false shepherds and harm. He lays down his life for the sheep. He gives the sheep eternal life. And he provides for the sheep, meeting their every need. We have a good shepherd that takes care of us. No, he's under no obligation. Yeah. And that's the sad thing. There's a lot of false shepherds out there. In fact, one of the great pictures in Zechariah is God says, you know, I, I've sent you the Messiah, the true shepherd, who would take care of you. And you're after the false shepherd. All he wants to do is hurt and destroy the flock. You'll take him, but you won't take the true shepherd. And, and, and I think that goes back to this, this notion that people have. What kind of preacher do they want? They want a preacher that tells them what they want to hear. They don't want a preacher that tells them what they need to hear. And that's the problem with Jesus. Jesus told the Pharisees, and told the Jews what they needed to hear. It's not what they wanted to hear. If Jesus would have been a Joel Olstein, he would have taken over the Roman Empire. All he had to do was tell the people what they wanted to hear. But don't you wonder how so many people follow him? Why do people follow? That's a good question. Why do people follow the false shepherds? Because they don't know what? They don't know the true shepherd. They don't know the true shepherd. They're lost. People in sin are servants of sin, slaves. So they're you know they're just going to and fro with everyone about. Yeah. And that makes it even more necessary for us to proclaim the true message and to follow the true shepherd and not the false one. Tell you, we're seeing it in this day, and it's going to continue to get worse. Those that preach the truth, you know, they're going to be labeled an outcast. Mm -hmm. It's coming. It's 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 not. It's it's already happening. Yeah. I mean, already they look at us as ignorant and unlearned and stupid and archaic, you know, and outdated. And you know, their their doctrine sounds so much better. And it's going to continue to get worse. Well, look. I have a psychology teacher who he openly in class, like, oh, as Christians, like, you know, like, they brought up, like, uh, like, should, uh, like, should gays and lesbians be allowed to adopt? And, like, one lady, because it's a TV class, but one lady in class is like, oh, I'm in a Christian home. And she mentioned that earlier in class, but when she mentioned, like, her opinion, he respected everyone's opinion when it came to her. 
and she wasn't even talking from a Christian standpoint when she was talking, but just the fact that she had said she was a Christian before, he openly said, oh, well, your Christian beliefs are wrong. Yeah, like, and this in front of the whole class, he's allowed to demean them over on air. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, well, that's good. That's good. Oh, well, you're a Christian. Your view is just ludicrous. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, what do you expect, you know? You pay money for that? Yeah. 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 I, I need to stay a full-time student. I, I give him what he wants to hear, but I know the truth. Yeah. I mean, you want to tell somebody like that, you know, said, well, you tell that to God when you see him. Yeah. You know, don't let him intimidate you. Right. I ain't intimidated by them. That's when you get close to him and say, just take a moment and enjoy this moment for a second. Because one of these days, when you're standing before that great white throne, and you're going to remember that there was a fundamental Bible-believing preacher standing this close to you, and you were this close to having salvation. And that's how close you missed your eternal life. And that day is coming. And mark it down. Believe me, you're not going to forget. You will remember. Yeah. Mostly they'll be standing with us and not against us in that day. Yeah. I'd rather I'd rather see an enemy stand with me than against him. But see, but see, what do you expect from the world? The world is the world hates God. What do you expect from the world? I mean, that's the point. Whenever you bring your human intellect to bear on spiritual things, you're always going to get the wrong answer. What do you expect? I mean, that's what the Pharisees did. They brought their human intellect to bear. Say, wait a minute, we've been studying this Messiah thing for a long time, and Jesus is not fitting what we believe the Messiah is to be. Therefore, he can't be the Messiah because we're obviously right. They missed it. They missed it. Almost, but lost. You know? It's a sad thing. And, well, after Christ's ministry here, it says in chapter 11, or chapter 1040, he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing, and first and there he remained for some time. This is the Perean ministry, across the Jordan into Perea. And John just mentions it in a few verses, but really it's a ministry that took several months. Um, where was this? This is the area the east of the Jordan River, the Transjordan. So if you look at a map of Jerusalem or map of Israel, it's it's where um, Jordan is today, the country of Jordan. Okay, this was a predominantly Gentile area um, where Christ went, and Luke actually nine through nineteen records most of this ministry that Christ had at this time. So if we go to Luke 9, one of the things about Luke is a lot of his a lot of his book is, is unique. And what's most unique about a lot of it is the parables that Christ uses. They're unique. And you see a lot of these in this this time in between um, the Judean ministries. Um, Christ sends out the 72. What does he do? Sends them out chapter 10 of Luke to go and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He curses Chorazin and Bethsaida in verse 13. Why? Why does he curse those two cities? 
Well, think about it. What did Nineveh do when Jonah showed up? Now, who was Jonah? On a scale of 1 to 100 in terms of effective, not effective, but of godly prophets, where was Jonah? Yeah, he was about a 2. He was about a 2. He wasn't in it, right? But what happened when he preached? Now, by the way, did he preach enthusiastically? No. No. Yeah. But what did Nineveh do? They repented. Now, the Messiah comes along, and what does Chorazin and Bethsaida do? Reject him. And what does Christ tell him? It's more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. And in fact, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up against this nation and condemn it because they repented after the preaching of Jonah. You've got one greater than Jonah here, and you're not listening. This is one of the principles of divine judgment. One of the principles that God uses when he judges in the end, how much light did you have? How much exposure did you have? Not only did you believe or not, that's important, but if you don't believe, what did you know? And judgment is going to be more severe and the torment greater for those who had the greatest light and sinned against it. What did Chorazin and Beth say to witness? They witnessed, stop and think about it, they personally witnessed two years, probably almost two years, of Christ's personal ministry. And that included healing the dead, or raising the dead, healing every disease, doing miracle after miracle, and in the end, did they believe? No. They had the greatest light. And Christ preaches woe to them. Um, let's look at some of the unique parables. Oh, by the way, I want you to understand, before we do that, let's look at chapter 11, verse 37. Okay. There's a concept that goes around that Jesus was sort of this nice guy, never really confronted people, you know. Jesus, milk toast, meek, mild, you know, mild mannered. Here's what Jesus. Here's how. Here, here is. Here's the social side to Jesus. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see they did not first wash before dinner. Now, what's the idea there? Well, you know, he's dirty. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has, this has nothing to do with hygienic cleaning. This had to do with ritual washing of hands. And the idea with the ritual washing of hands is if you didn't wash your hands just right, there was a danger that you could eat a demon. A demon could get into you by not eating with clean hands. And the Pharisees had this very elaborate ritual of going through the cleaning of hands. And Christ didn't do that. Lord, now, here, here's how Christ handled this. Okay? He said, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and then the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Who's he saying this to? The host. He said, you fool. Did he not 
did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms. But give us alms, those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint, rue, and every herb, and neglect patience and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. What happened if you hit an unmarked grave in those days? You were richly what? Defiled unclean. Now, understand, do you know what woe means there? Do you know the import of what that's what it's really meaning? What's Christ telling them? He's saying, damn you. I mean, that's really what he's saying. He, he's calling damnation down on them. You guys... You worry about tithing mint and annas and cumin. What's mint, annas, and cumin? Little herbs. Little herbs. You, 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 you carve up your little herb plants and make sure the guy gets a tenth of your little herbs and you neglect mercy, righteousness, and justice. The way you measure. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of grossness. It's like, it's like getting a beautiful gold cup on the outside, shiny and jewels, and you look inside and it's got rotten filth. He says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of rottenness and stinking. And he says, you're like a, a tomb that's hidden nobody knows about until they walk over it and then they're defiled. They take a mess that looks cool and they're filling it with sewage. Yeah. And, and, and when is Christ doing this? He's doing this right at the page. He's doing it right publicly, right in his face. Don't tell me that Christ was this lovey-dovey, mamby-pamby kind of guy. He got right in their face. And then some lawyer stood up. Now, that's a bad thing to do. Uh -oh. The lawyer, teacher, and saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, I, I forgot about you guys. Woe to you. Damn you, lawyers. Also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Your fathers killed the prophets, and you go build their tomb. You say you are witnesses if you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you would not, and you build their tombs. Wherefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who preached perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him and broke him to speak about many things, lying away for him to catch him in something he might say. He really got them frosted. And why did he do that? Straight. Tell him the truth. And I think this is the sad thing. He told her, he said, you know, it's not bad, it's bad enough that you don't want to get into the kingdom of heaven, but what are you doing to other people who want to get in? You're hindering them. Yeah. I'll never forget the time I had, I think it was a Jehovah Witness come to my door, or a Mormon. 
I said, well, I hope you get run over by a truck. Mm. And looked at me. I said, look, if you want to go to hell, fine, but I just don't want to see you taking other people there with you. They never did come back to my house. But Christ, Christ confronted these guys because they had so externalized religion, they missed the point of it. He says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.